0: Hello, everyone. I'm Evan DeBru, and welcome to Civ Tech Talks, a podcast where we chat with college students and early career professionals about their journeys to civic tech their passions, their projects, and why people should consider utilizing technology in the civic space. Notice I said we this time because the Jay Jane joins me for the intro for the first time in two introductions.
1: Hello, hello, hello. It's great to be back for our intro segment. Evan may have been doing these intros solo for the last couple of episodes, but for my sports fans out there, Evan and I are definitely a better duo than Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith.
0: They might have a speed in most aspects of the sports department, but we definitely do a better job hosting a civic tech podcast.
1: Now, Evan, I definitely agree with that because of our civic tech experiences, but I think also part of it is because you are a Wisconsin sports fan. So naturally, there's some dead weight coming from your end there. I mean, come on, Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers. ugh, geez.
0: Mm, who's the Chicago Bears quarterback again, Jay? Remind me. Can't
1: remember. Ah, uh, touche, Evan, considering I spent a lot of time reading Russell Wilson trade rumors and uh, daydreaming about some deep dish from Lou Malnati's pizza. That kind of hit a little deep, just like my deep dish pizza. Well, maybe the Chicago Bears' lack of a quarterback will break the mold this year in the NFL and we'll win the NFC North and probably a Super Bowl as well with uh, with Nick Foles.
0: Uh, speaking of breaking the mold, we seem to be breaking the mold of our typical episode structure again this week.
1: Hmm, interesting. Why is that, Evan? Do tell. On this week's episode of Sift Tech
0: Talks, We aren't interviewing a college student or early career professional. Instead, we are fortunate to be joined by Mitchell Weiss. I'm taking the description of our guest today from his new book, but it sums up his background quite well. Mitchell Weiss is a professor at the Harvard Business School and the creator of its public entrepreneurship course, which focuses on public leaders and private entrepreneurs inventing a difference in the world. Prior to joining the Harvard Business School, Weiss was the chief of staff to Boston's mayor, Thomas Menino. Weiss co-founded the Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics and guided the Mayor's Office response to the attacks on the Boston Marathon and played a key role in starting One Fund Boston. As impressive as all of that is, and we will talk about some of his work
1: in our discussion, he came to chat with us about his recent book, We the Possibility. We the Possibility demonstrates how civic entrepreneurs and civic technologists can come together to create a more effective government that works more efficiently for its constituents. Our conversation is
0: quite intriguing for both technologists and civic leaders. With that, we will leave you with our discussion with Mitchell Weiss. One of the big concepts
1: that you mention in the book is probability government versus possibility government. Probability government is, quote, the kind of government that does mostly what's pretty sure to work, but leads often to middling, mediocre outcomes. Essentially, It is the government that has existed to serve the American people for hundreds of years. Rather than acting in this way, you propose that our institution should follow a model of possibility government in order to convey that, quote, government can still solve problems. One of your main responsibilities as chief of staff was creating One Fund Boston, the city's foundation to support the Boston Marathon bombing victims and their families. Can you describe the concept of possibility government and why it is important and how you utilize possibility government to create a foundation that was more efficient than previous
2: funds for other domestic terrorism incidents. After the bombing happened that Monday in in April, 2013, obviously, I mean, it was a horrible day. Lives were ended in an instant, hundreds of lives upended. But the amazing thing that happened is all this generosity started flowing from around the world. And then the question is, what do we do with all this generosity, all this money? And as you alluded to, What normally happens when other events like this happen around the country, mass shootings, other tragedies like this, is the big local established institution in town collects and distributes those funds. And that works okay, except uh, what we happen to know is it takes quite a long time to get those monies out. In fact, it had been well over 120 days since the horrible shootings at Sandy Hook, and not a penny had yet made it to uh, the families of those children that were killed. It was never gonna bring back their kids, but it was meant for them, and so we decided we were gonna start our own new fund and get the money out more directly and more swiftly. This is not the way, right? Things are normally done. In fact, the head of the local established institution, the, the trusted long-standing institution the day after the bombing was berating me on the phone saying, you can't do this. You'll raise less money, you can't start something new. We did that anyways. We got started that night on a PayPal account. Uh, the next morning I figured out we also needed a post office box. Uh, and eventually collected it and distributed $60 million in 75 days. And a year later, the survivors, uh, two of them, had had asked me to tell them a long version of that story. And I said, it's not, you know, I told them a long version of the story. Then they told me to tell it to others. I said, it's not my story to tell. I didn't get hurt. I wasn't injured. Didn't help anybody, uh, save anybody's life. They said, no, no, you have to show people government can do new things. And so I was really left, Jay, with this riddle, which is like, well, what, which is it? Is it what the foundation had had said, which is we can't do new things? And which, by the way, many of us have witnessed recently and, and beforehand that sort of, we don't solve public problems really. Or was it what the survivors had seen, which is that we could. And so I've basically spent the last you know half decade or so trying to research that question, understand the answer to that question, and have come around to this belief that we can if we move towards possibility. And so I would say probability government is, in that instance, is is doing these long-established funds the way it normally is, and possibility was trying a new way. And it was unlikely to work our way. The foundation head wasn't wrong, but there was this chance that if we did it well, did it right, we could, in fact, succeed and uh, went way beyond what anybody had ever done before. That's the dichotomy, and that's where I think we need to head.
0: You know, one of the first questions that came to mind when
2: I read the book was, Possible government
0: sort of models this entrepreneurial spirit, and that's known for being fast and being agile. But within the government, is this method of trying to come up with solutions or public problems necessarily faster than working within like a probability government structure, or is it sometimes slower?
2: I think possibility government is most of the times faster. It might seem odd, right, that we're trying something new and we can go faster than trying what's already there. But the reality is in government, and and you've seen enough of this to probably see it, and I've certainly have and others have, that we're so nervous, uh, we're so risk averse, the way that we end up dealing with whatever iota of uncertainty exists, even when we're trying something that's been done before, is to try to plan our way through that uncertainty. So then there's the consultants, and then there's the commissions, and then there's the conference rooms, and the RFPs. and, And by the time we ultimately deploy a solution, it's sometimes literally years after the problem emerged. And by then, the solution we've designed is no longer attuned to the problem as it really is. And of course, along the way, we've received no input from the users themselves to enhance it. And so, so the reason that probability government is slow in many instances, is because we're trying to plan our way through the uncertainty. And what possibility government affords us is, is, is this opportunity, if we do it well, to actually work our way through the uncertainty, use action to resolve the uncertainty, try things and see what happens. And I actually think, Evan, it can be much, much swifter. Now, I'm not advocating it that we do it in a foolhardy way, that we do it recklessly. I'm not in favor of move fast and break things. That's not the point. The point is that if we actually, with some skill and discipline, deploy in prototypes and in modest ways, we can learn and iterate faster than if we try to plan and commission and consult and committee our way through things.
0: No, you point out that many startup ideas fail. It's like, what, three and four or something? So regarding the F word, how do we address failure? Well, how we address failure is perhaps one of the biggest concepts of this book. How do we become less afraid of the stigma behind failure in order to build a better government that works more efficiently for
2: its constituents? It's a great question. You know, how, do we, how do we deal with this F word? I like that. So first of all, we have to acknowledge that oftentimes the status quo is the dangerous choice. And that in many instances, what we're doing right now is failing, maybe not acutely and dramatically on, and maybe not every day on the front cover of the, of the newspaper failing, but it's failing. When 25% of kids aren't graduating high schools in, in big cities, when people aren't eating, when they're not getting trained for new jobs, when we're not ready for a pandemic that's coming, that's failure. And so we, the, the first way to deal with this is to stop assuming that, that not trying new things means we can avoid failure. In fact, we have failure all, we have lots of success, by the way, but we also have plenty of failure all around us, and we have to acknowledge that. Okay, so that's step one. The other thing is to understand that failure, modest failure, is a part of trying new things, yes, and shift the kind of accountability that we have around failure. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we have got to hold people accountable if they're lazy, if they break the rules, if they waste time, money, and energy, those kinds of failures. We still have to have accountability for that. When we're talking about possibility government, we're not talking about giving up accountability for those kinds of failures. We don't want to accept laziness or ineptitude or you know, breaking the rules and breaking the laws. That's not the kind of failure we want to tolerate. But we do understand that when we try new things, that some of those new things are not going to work. And those kinds of failures, if we do them modestly, again, without wasting too much time, without wasting too much public treasure, those are the kinds of failures we need to tolerate. So the first step is really understanding that the present is riskier than we think it is. And the second step is a shift of the kind of accountability we provide around failure. Not every failure deserves to be, you know, hectored in a, in a hearing room. Only, only some of them do, and we have to learn to distinguish uh, one from the other.
0: Trying to solve problems in the public space, especially in government, when you fail, it kind of turns into borderline absurd theater, depending on how high level the mistake is. And because of how the media portrays these mistakes, how elected officials portray these mistakes. And then if you fail and it's portrayed as enough of a failure, enough people vote you out of office because of that, they're stinging electoral consequences because of that. So I guess the natural question that comes to mind for me is like, what do you say to people who maybe think that because the government doesn't necessarily try new things, what do you say to them when, when they say that government can't solve society's problems? because of these things that stand in the way?
2: Well, government can. I mean, government has, government does. So there's a, there's a myth, there's a myth basically that government can't be entrepreneurial or shouldn't be entrepreneurial or hasn't be entrepreneurial. Let's just take all of those. So one is that government hasn't experimented, right? This isn't what government does. That's just historically untrue. You only have to look at our country, the United States, it's early days, you know, in, in our first inaugural address, George Washington, new president of a new nation, calls this an experiment, you know, staked finally in the hands of the American people. Four of the first five presidents call it an experiment. Every piece of government we have today, at every level, from every apparatus of the military to every stop sign and teaching plan has been invented at some point. So it's just simply not true that we don't experiment in government and we, we, ha- we aren't entrepreneurs of government. We have been. That's how we got here. There's a second argument, which is that we shouldn't do this. This is an argument more of political philosophy or economics. Also, not very sound. You know, Nobel Prizes have been awarded. Ken Arrow, on the basis of the idea that that government is maybe best positioned to absorb and spread risk. Others, my colleague and friend David Moss, have written on this. That government, because of its sheer size and scale and its taxing authority and otherwise, is best positioned to absorb and spread risk. And we should be trying new things, because when we don't, we leave those risks onto individuals who are much less equipped to absorb them. So this argument that that government hasn't, government shouldn't, by the way, the shouldn't argument has a partner argument, which is, oh, what we really should do is leave this kind of innovation up to the private sector or leave it up to philanthropy. And um, while we absolutely need philanthropy to help be at the cutting edge of all this, often they've provided funds to help public things, gain public support. While we absolutely want a huge gov tech sector, startups building all these solutions, they cannot do their work without... Innovators, experimenters, entrepreneurs inside government. They need partners inside. So it's a fallacy to say we should leave it to them. So so government uh, has done this, government should do this, I believe. The third argument is that government can't do this. This is an argument of capacity. And this is gonna be the hardest argument to displace because we have maybe not been all that strong at experimenting and entrepreneurship in government of late. And we need to get better. This is why there are efforts like those you participated in coding it forward and, and, and efforts like those digital service and 18F and the TTS and efforts like this all around the world to bring a wave of uh, new skills for experimenting um, into government by virtue of, of helping the people inside government who have those skills come out of the woodwork, not be afraid to share their ideas, not to be afraid to deploy these entrepreneurial skill sets and by inviting people from the outside. Young people who are coming up, who are thinking about how they might want to marry their interest in in entrepreneurship and in in public service to say, hey, you can come do that in government. And also people who have been doing it, maybe in in, in the world of technology and otherwise, to say, hey, why don't you spend a year or two or more inside a government at a city, state, federal level, and bring that modern possibility skill set to us. So we can develop this capacity by building up our entrepreneurial muscle and by working on the way we attract talent from the outside and, and also, and absolutely from the inside out, we can that's what I tell them. I want
1: to expand on this concept that you had just said about, you know, people working in technology for a while, and then kind of like leaving to working on more public sector problems. A very interesting idea that you have brought up early on in the book is designing for the public and for public constituents. To support this idea, you mentioned an example about a former Facebook employee named Jimmy Chen, who decided to design, quote, a startup that helped people that startups weren't reaching. In his case, it was a company that made the food stamp application process easier for Americans. And something that's also I thought was really interesting in one of my other readings in A Civic Technologist Practice Guide by Sid Harrell, awesome book. She says this quote that pretty much the only way to ensure that software, however well built, is actually useful for its intended purpose is to design it for and ideally with the people who will use it. So my question here is how does designing public policy with the public in mind create a more effective possibility government?
2: Well, it starts with this belief, you know, IDEO and others have sort of said it more eloquently, that all problems are solvable and people who face them, the team at IDEO say, have hold the key to their solution. How does working with citizens, working with the public, really make more likely possibility government into solving of big public problems? Because they're full of ideas. Because they're full of ideas. You know, there's so much social science that shows how much user innovation drives improvements. You know, Eric von Hippel had done these famous studies of scientific instruments. People working with these things made them better. Going all the way back to Adam Smith. I mean, people working with machines made them better. The people who experience the machinery of government can make it better. They're full of ideas. So that's just absolute key. The other, the highly related reason is, and this goes back to our conversation here at the top, which is all too often what we do in government, is build something from the confines of our city halls or our state capitol buildings or our federal buildings with our contractors or not, and deploy it six months, two years, three years, five years after a conception with very little interaction from the actual public, how they actually live, how they lead their lives. And uh, we need to stop doing that and engage them along the way. I mean, I, I also write in the book about this concept of uh, desire lines, you know, not, not my concept, but made famous in New York City and elsewhere, where if we watch the way citizens experience their government and adjust to them, you know, on occasion, we can, <laughs> we can actually serve them better and still in ways that work for the commons. I mean, Mayor Melvin Carter of, of St. Paul, Minnesota, who I write about in the book is one of the mayors who has most loyalty to this idea that I need, you know, best ideas, he says, my best ideas are in other people's heads. We, we need to go to the public, ask them th- for their ideas and stop trying to make them basically accord with how government is sort of, we design government for them, but get their input all along the way so that uh, government works truly with them. I was thinking to myself, this is a very random example, but I was applying for a passport renewal today uh, with this prospect, we may all be able to travel again sometime. The amount of instruction one has to go to, right? to, To make sure you have the right photo for the passport. And it's like, why are we as a government putting that on this on the citizen, isn't there like a very easy fix, a relatively easy fix for government to adjust photos probably to the size and format and function functionality to be in? Like it's just, you can tell some very well-intended set of bureaucrats have basically said, here's how we keep it regimented and routine, but it's not really conducive to helping everyday people in their everyday lives. And we need government to do more, to do more of that.
1: Going back to this whole concept, you know, just bureaucrats working on all of these problems and, you know, technologists in City Hall working for several years on these problems with collaboration with consultants kind of leads to some of these like big laggish issues in government. Like, for example, with passport control that you had just described, the process for applying for a passport. And I've gone through it and, you know, applying for global entry and things like that is just a very sluggish process. I want to segue from that into a concept that you have written in the book about called trisector athletes individuals who have experience in the private, social, and public sectors. And your belief about tri-sector athletes is that they have enough experience from all three sectors to come in and solve a lot of government problems. And it's actually a really interesting concept that's personal to me. Just based on my own experiences, I had my private internship experiences in FANG and in Big Tech. And then I worked as an intern for Congress and Raja Krishnamoorthy for a semester while I was in college and then did my Tony at Ford internship at the Department of Health and Human Services and then worked on more of a social cause at the Texas Democratic Party. And even then, when I've given people advice about entering civic tech or like looking for internships in college, I've always been a person who's been like, don't just work in one sector, go take an internship in the private sector, do something in the public sector do something that's social good in order to gain all those experiences. So I thought it was really refreshing actually having that concept outlined and given a term for it in the book specifically. But I wanted to take your brain on this a little more. Why do you believe tri-sector athletes might have a bigger impact in the civic entrepreneurship space than individuals who have worked solely in one of these three spaces?
2: So the phrase is from Joe Nye. And I sort of in the book adapted for our purposes of of achieving true possibility government and and talk about tri-sector entrepreneurship. And so I just think he was so wise and others who've echoed him to say, yes, we need people who worked across all three sectors. And I think today, uh, Ajay, to answer your question, I think today we especially need people who worked across all three sectors as they undertake entrepreneurship in the public service. And here's why. I think we have had a great, uh, in some ways, a great coming together over the course last decade of entrepreneurship public service and technology. And it's meant a whole suite of new programs, again, at city, state, federal levels. It's meant actually a lot more public problem solving than we otherwise would have been. It's meant a generation of people inspired to try to take their technology skills into the public service, which which is great. But at this minute we're living in right now, in 2021, there's a threatening coming apart. There's this worry, actually, and well-founded in many instances, that this marriage of technology, entrepreneurship, and government is more for ill than for good, that instead of getting great public problem solving and great sort of citizen-centered and human-centered design and modern, agile ways of deploying solutions quicker rather than slower, that people worry that instead what this marriage will lead to is privacy violations and over-surveillance, exacerbation of inequity, concentration of power, undermining of our democracy. I write about in this book about this, this the first hearing that, that Mark Zuckerberg went to, And Orrin Hatch questioned him, how do you make money if you don't charge your customers? And and Zuckerberg sort of smirked and said, well, you know, we sell ads, Senator. And I call this a real Rorschach test uh, for, for people observing this moment, because if you were a techie and you watched that, you thought like, oh, how silly our senators are. They don't understand how the internet works and how platforms work. And if you were a policy person, though, watching that, you wondered, well, who does Mark Zuckerberg think he is, that he didn't take the time to understand really the civic square and the civic space before he decided to. In some ways, quasi replace it, and so it, just in that moment, and ever since, we've had this fissure between tech entrepreneurship, government. We've had these concerns that I outlined, and so why do I think we need trisector entrepreneurship? I think it's the best hope we have for getting the best of this intersection and not the worst. And look, it's not a panacea. I mean, we could absolutely have a, a pernicious version of a revolving door: people go to you know certain tech companies, back into government, back to tech companies, back to government, and it. And it has a kind of pernicious effect. It, it leads to a lack of thinking, a lack of judgment, a lack of real public service. But what I think instead, what I'm truly hopeful about is that a generation of tri-sector entrepreneurs will, will be, be, bring skill sets back and forth from those sectors, a set of values you know, back and forth. I write about uh, some former students of mine, uh, one named uh, Henry Tsai included, who I know took the things he picked up working at, for example, in the early days, uh, uh, early-ish days of, of Yahoo, into his work eventually. For the city of San Jose, but and, and other tech companies, but absolutely then took his his what he picked up working for the city of San Jose in terms of public value, public service, public norms to the work he took to, to one of the big tech companies afterwards. And I think we need that kind of public values working in that that one direction. And also maybe a yes, a technology skill set mindset working back in the other. It's that by having people move through those spaces, I think we're likely to bridge this gap and solve these problems in ways that help the public. Yeah, and that's something that I've been really thinking about over the past couple of months just going on my
1: own job search. I mean, I was working at the Texas Democratic Party till January and currently as I'm going through the job process and doing all these coding challenges, I've been, you know, wondering do I want to stay in more of a political tech space, more of like a civic tech space, something that's completely different from either one of those two fields. Although for me, I've definitely narrowed it down to like civic tech or like political tech, but even then I've been like focused on working on a political campaign for so long. It was my dream when I was in college and I was able to achieve it that now I'm like, do I want to continue in this field or do I want to go to another field and potentially learn new skills that I can bring back to political tech? So I think even just taking that concept and applying it to like some of the problems that I'm going through right now is definitely like really refreshing to hear because I feel like that either way, if I stay in political tech, go to another organization and focus on the problems that I'm passionate about or go to civic tech and work on also some other amazing problems that are just really passionate, I'll be able to go back and forth between those industries and just learn a lot as well. And that kind of brings you to another point. In the book, you talk a lot about possibility leaders and possibility citizens, possibility leaders being, you know, people who are kind of just doing the designing people who are working on enacting the public policy and possibility citizens being, again, us as well, where we are being supportive of the government on its mission to work more towards a possibility government. So I want to ask you this question, what can we do as possibility leaders and possibility citizens to help create a possibility
2: government? So there's three steps. There's three main steps to achieving possibility government, you know, ergo, I think solving big problems that face us. One is government that can imagine. We need new ideas, right? Two is government that can try. We're going to to end up sorting among those ideas, the good ones from the bad ones, having ways of doing that, but ultimately trying them so that we can try new solutions even when people are basically averse to that idea. And then if we can have those ideas and we try them, we we need to be able to scale them so they help everybody. And all along that pathway, government that can imagine, government that can try, government that can scale, there are absolutely things we need people in government to do and do better. But there are also things we need all the rest of us to do, the public, we, the possibility. And it's just absolutely true that our public leaders cannot move to this new kind of governing, this new mindset if they don't have the permission, the encouragement and the co-participation from the public. On the ideas side, just there, I mean, we talked about it earlier, but the public is full of them about how to solve the problems around us. And we need the public to participate, to offer up ideas, to go to those community hackathons, to tell your public officials how to really solve the problems that vex that you. On the try, we absolutely need the public to give the permission uh, and the encouragement to leaders to try things that may not work. And then yes, to craft this new kind of accountability. Which is still accountability for failure, but not to skewer public officials in their local city halls, town meetings when a project doesn't work. To be able to we need the public to be discerning about the different kinds of failures. And yes, skewer ineptitude and incompetence, but not just the the bravery and ingenuity that comes to try new things, even when those new things might not turn out to be the solution we hoped they were. We need the public there. And then ultimately, if we're going to scale these things, scale these solutions, we're going to need the public. I write a lot in the book about government as a platform, Tim O'Reilly's a moniker for for basically the government as a, as a foundation and as a connector, and not always as the direct problem solver. And whenever government acts as a platform, it's connecting others to help solve problems. And those others are often, or almost always, us, whether it's public safety, public health, education. We, the citizens, help provide those things to each other. And so the public is going to be essential there. All along the way, there's roles for all the rest of us, and I, I hope we'll take them up.
0: One of the topics you cover is government as a platform, and as someone who is thinking about and starting to work on a government open data platform with Code for Milwaukee, I found the questions you asked and some of the approaches for engaging different groups for platform design was quite insightful. So, could you discuss some approaches citizen users and
2: governments can take to provide value or increase engagement on government platforms? The first thing to recognize, uh, well, about platforms and government as a platform is that this is not new. So we want engagement, we, we want to disarm people about it somewhat, and to understand it's not always technology, it's not actually brand new, that things we've had with us for as long as we've been around almost, um, or not quite, are basically government-provided platforms. And the most canonical example, maybe, and Tim writes about this, are roads. So roads are platforms, and especially in the way that they obviously connect people uh, along them, which is what platforms do to connect people either to innovate or to exchange, but also because they have very powerful network effects and a lot of positive network effects. In other words, user number two adds value to user number one. A road with only one person alongside it is not of much value. But as soon as a neighbor moves in down the street, now I have friends. A restaurant moves in, now I have food. A museum moves in, now I have culture. And so they demonstrate these very powerful network effects uh, that uh, subsequent users make the early users better off. And they also have negative network effects, by the way, right? Congestion, where subsequent users make people worse off. And so roads, tell us that platforms aren't brand new. They're also not always good. And we have to build and manage them to accentuate the positive network effects and minimize the negative ones, Evan. So that's like a key piece. If you're going to engage citizens on these platforms, you need to ask yourself, how will each subsequent citizen or neighbor or community member or resident make other ones better off? How will we each make each other better off? That's absolutely key and not worse off. Okay. That's like big bucket number one. The second thing to think about, is the thing that all platform architects think about or should think about. It's how am I going to get anybody on this platform? It's the so-called the chicken and the egg problem, right? So if we think about an open data platform like data.gov when it was founded, well, who do we need on that platform? You know, well, we need some citizen data, citizen, data scientists and citizen volunteers. We also need some companies to sort of make use of this data. And we need other outside data providers. Well, how are we going to get any of them to join up? How are we going to get any of them to show up? And so the other big thing, Evan, one has to do is figure out how to basically attract people, one side or the other side or both sides, to the platforms in the first instance. And in the book, I describe the work uh, other scholars have done around ways to basically get one side or, or the other and get, get your flywheel, your platform flywheel spinning. That's that's the second big step.
0: You yeah, have some thoughts around the road design and how And also when you discuss negative network effects and how, well, when we were designing the interstates back in the 50s, we tended to build roads over minority communities. So, I mean, that's something we need to be conscious about, too, when we talk about looking forward, but also looking back and not repeating the same mistakes. That's something that really sticks with me. I'm going to move on to our next question here. What advice do you have for people considering working in civic technology? on policy or in politics about tackling modern day problems in our society with possibility government.
2: Well, my first advice is go do it. It's amazing, incredible work. It's so necessary. We need people with energy and creativity and, and hopefulness and skill. So my first advice is go do it. It's, it's and and, and to Edge's earlier question, you don't have to make a lifelong commitment to it. You can, you can do it and then later on do something else or come back to it. So just go do it. Find a role inside a government or find a role at some civic tech or gov tech company and, and do it is my first advice. While you're doing it, of course, like other advice to make sure you do it well and not unwell, or as I, as I say in the book, to make sure that we're chasing possibility, yes, but not delusion, right? We want to move on from probability to possibility, but not past it to something much more dangerous. And so if you're going to go become a civic technologist, work on entrepreneurship in the public interest, my advice is, first of all, spend lots of time with the people who face these problems. Understanding it from their view, developing empathy for their view. Absolutely be thoughtful about trying things in ways that maximize learning, minimize waste so that we don't waste a ton of public treasure, public money. In other words, time and learn a ton. As you're trying new things, be aware of not putting the risks of trying on people who don't bear the rewards of the the returns, right? So be fair about how those risks and rewards are distributed. Don't add risk onto people who can't bear it. Don't inject risk into systems that can't stomach it. Do actually work swiftly enough so that you learn fast enough so that even if, as James Gertz told me, you know, circumstances are changing on the ground, that you're learning faster than, than they are. You know, do that. When you start projects, make sure that there's the political will and, and capacity to stop them if they're not working or to scale them if they are. If you don't have either of those two competencies or those two sets of interest, you know, shutting things that are down that aren't working or backing things that are, then the logic of possibility won't work. Do it and then be careful about your motives, about making sure you understand the needs of the people that you're trying to help. Definitely uh, figure out ways to try new things, even when those things are risky. Be careful about on whom you uh, lay those risks and make sure that you learn fast enough so you can get ahead of them. I want to take another step back into more of like
1: the middle of the book. And in chapter six, when you talked a lot about some of the organizations that were bringing in new talent into civic entrepreneurship, such as Coding It Forward, for example, where as our listeners definitely know by this point, that's where Evan and I first got our feet wet into civic technology. When I was starting out in civic technology and everyone at my university was very fang or bust, like your net worth in the computer science department and the computer science culture was, okay, are you working at Facebook? Then you're, you know, you're worth more as a human being than someone who's working at, let's say, Allstate Insurance, for example. And as a result, at some of these top universities, I feel like a lot of people just don't consider the problems that they could be fixing in civic tech do you have suggestions for universities and agencies to attract people at the collegiate level to work on civic problems and to become tri-sector athletes? Because from what I've seen for a lot of students that I was with as an undergraduate student, there's so many students who only work at one company and like who worked at, do multiple internships at Facebook, who do multiple internships at Amazon, and then end up working there full time and don't gain that experience of working in the private sector, working in the public sector, of working in the social sector, or even at different companies in order to grow more as a technologist
2: and to have more of a societal impact with their coding skills? Well, I think you just answered the question yourself. I mean, the way that we entice people into this work is to remind them that you can work on the biggest problems on the planet. I mean, so many of the software engineers, the other technologists I've met, the thing that gets them going in the morning is this idea that they can work on really big problems. And by the way, heart problems. So there we got check one and check two. Government has really big and really hard problems to solve, and you can help. Like, what's more enticing than that? The other thing we have to say to folks to entice them, and then we have to make good on this promise, is that you can actually make a difference solving those problems. People aren't going to come and join and stay unless they see the fruits of their work. And so part of the reason to change some of the methodology and get deployment faster, of course, the main reason, the most important reason is to get solutions to citizens and neighbors faster. But it, it also has this benefit of showing people that your work matters. And letting them see it and letting them learn from it and letting them get better at it. And it's not that you have to come and labor on something for seven years, and then maybe it will possibly get through some committee and part of Congress and then sometime. I mean, look, some, some seismic changes do take generations. I don't want to minimize those. But there are many things we can get done on a shorter time horizon. And so the other way to entice people and keep them at this work is to let them and help them make a difference earlier and sooner rather than later. We're already seeing it. I mean, you know, you live in this world now where there are things like Coding It Forward and things like when I co-founded the mayor's office of newer mechanics in Boston, there wasn't big, big city innovation office anywhere in the country. And people didn't, technologists and otherwise didn't think, oh, I can go into cities and that would be a cool thing to do. And nowadays, the mayor's office of newer mechanics is flooded with applicants. Other offices like it are flooded with applicants. City governments around the country, around the world have people with this skill set. So over the span of, say, a decade and a half, this has already become so much more enticing. And I think it will, so long as you remind people big problems, problems that are hard, problems that need your help, and problems you can make a difference on in actually a reasonable period of time. That is the, the invitation that goes out and is the invitation we see people responding to.
0: I really enjoyed this conversation, and I really enjoyed your book. I hope everyone who's listening to this podcast gives it a read.
1: Yes. We the Possibility by Mitchell Weiss is just truly an awesome book. I had a great time reading it and definitely looking forward to discussing it with y'all again in the next couple of weeks at our book
2: discussion. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to hearing what the both of you end up doing with this skill set and mindset and also uh, so many of your listeners.
0: Listening to our sixth episode of CIF Tech Talks. Once again, special thanks to our guest, Professor Mitchell Weiss, for being on the podcast this week.
1: We will be recording more segments in the next few weeks, so please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Also, you can find We the Possibility at your local bookstore or on the internet.
0: Please give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Civ Tech Talks. If you're interested in civic tech opportunities, please consider joining Impactful. You can find more information at weareimpactful.org. Thanks, y'all.